welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. It's so nice to have you here with me on Colin and Erin Gobra. We are actually uh, recording this today on St. Patrick's Day. So we'll talk a little bit about Ireland later. But I have our managing editor, Zach Thompson, on the line. Hey, Zach. Nice Hi. to speak with you. Hi. Happy St. Patrick's Day. I hope you're wearing green. Oh, I am wearing green. I looked oh, down thinking know. I wasn't, but I, I kind of put it on almost subconsciously. Uh, I guess there was part of me that knew uh, that St. Patrick's Day was here. Just in the air. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we'll talk about we'll talk about Ireland and St. Patrick's Day in a little bit. But let's start with what has been a really, really popular topic on Fromers.com. And that is what may be a historic number of new thrill rides debuting this year. Uh, You and Jason Cochran, who is the author of our Guide to Orlando, wrote a a really, it was like a Bible-length piece uh, (laughs) on the topic. It was long. Why are there so many new thrill rides coming out in 2022 is it is it a response to the pandemic did we just so bored at home that we need a, a real adrenaline fix or is it something else well it had to do with the pandemic but it more it was more about how the pandemic delayed new openings so there were all the roller coasters that were scheduled to open in 2020 and 2021 that didn't happen so they're coming online now so it's uh it's a big summer for thrill rides yeah, absolutely. And they're all over the country. That was that was what was so interesting to me. A lot of them are in Florida, the theme park hub of Florida. And one of the major ones is in SeaWorld, which is uh, uh, that's a theme park that I think of as as being animal centric. But they're trying to change that, right? Yeah, they've for about a decade now, they've sort of been trying to pivot away from the animal entertainment, which has been controversial ever since the Blackfish documentary um, that uh, alleged the mistreatment of uh, the orcas that were, uh, you know, Shamu that uh, SeaWorld was so known for. I, when I went right. as a kid, I had a stuffed Shamu. I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what was going on there. Uh, that was very <laughs> controversial. Um, and they, they've sort of pivoted towards thrill rides. A lot of them have a marine life name or theme. Uh, hmm. Like they have a new one in San Diego that's called uh, emperor and it's supposed to mirror the the way uh, emperor penguins dive for fish like that's the <laughs> tenuous uh, marine life oh. connection so wait, but is, wait before we yeah. leave that how does that work or you're not diving into the water are no, you no it's the sky which is very non-penguin-esque because uh, you're yeah. in the sky no it goes up i can't remember how how high but then you it's a, like a face down vertical drop Ugh. that's like more than i think it's exactly 90 degrees and uh wow then twists and turns all over the place interesting that opened okay. last week actually yeah wow it's a, it's a 143 foot vertical drop at 60 miles per hour and it's a it's a floorless so your legs are dangling while that happens god that sounds horrifying but <laughs> <laughs> i'm not a i'm not an amusement park fan so what's sea world in orlando doing it has the uh what's called the icebreaker and its deal is that it has like a, I think it's no, it's a launch roller coaster, which means it doesn't, it's propelled by electromagnetic propulsion. So it's not mm. by hills 
or chains or cables. It's by so you can go back and forth. It's um, usually faster and smoother. And its big deal is that it has this top hat hill, which means it goes. It looks like a like a, the the term. It goes up uh, a little bit across and then down like a hundred degrees. It's uh, now Florida's steepest vertical drop, and that's saying something because we're talking about Florida, where which has a lot of theme parks. Yeah, that's yeah. that's impressive. You know, I have such mixed feelings about SeaWorld because we have been so bedeviled with their presence in our Fromer's Easy Guide to Orlando, you know. By reaction from like PETA and stuff? By reaction from PETA. They they wrote to us. They wrote to the people who distribute our books. They've written to bookstores telling them not to carry our book. And what we do in the book is, which is written by Jason Cochran, we have huge boxes giving PETA's argument, giving mm-hmm. the argument for not going. And then we also try and tell the other side of the story, which is that SeaWorld has given a lot of money over the years towards marine rescue and towards trying to revive certain coral reefs and doing a lot of marine projects. Uh, and we think that the, the the reader should make the decision. But PETA does not want us to even have any mention of it in the book. And, and hundreds of people work there. Uh, so so we, we feel that the, the reader should decide whether or not to go. It's interesting. Do you think that eventually they're just going to phase out all of the animal attractions and just become just thrill rides? Or who knows? I, I wouldn't be surprised. They have made a lot of changes to animal entertainment shows. I remember a, a couple of years ago they decided they would no longer do um, – tricks where trainers ride dolphins and porpoises which mm. they used to do that used to be a mainstay and that actually harms the, the animal um i'm sympathetic right. to PETA's stance but i i also agree that i mean it is if you're going to do a, a guidebook about orlando it seems strange not to mention one of one of the big ones that's there i think it would be smart for them to move away from animals altogether for my own conscience <laughs> yeah yeah no definitely definitely so all right so that's in Orlando. Well, there's actually another uh, in Tampa Bay, which is nearby, also in central Florida. Another one that opened last week, March 11th, uh, I guess a little more than last week, uh, and is even sort of a bigger deal for like true coaster nuts is uh, Iron Gwazi at Bush Gardens, Tampa Bay. And it's been it's actually a ride that has been around since I think 1999. It was originally a, a wooden roller coaster. It had two trains that would race each other. But the deal is with wooden roller coasters, as you know, if you've ever been on like the Coney Island Cyclone, they get rougher and rougher over the years. Um, oh. so it looks like you're going to break a rib by the end because the, the <laughs> uh, wood wears down. I don't know what happens, but it gets, you know, that juddering. Um, so it had gotten so horrible that by 2015, it was pretty uh, like closed. So huh. Bush Gardens had this plan to create what's called a hybrid roller coaster, which is when they use parts of the original structure, but they put steel tracks on so they uh-huh. can do more exciting things in a smooth way that won't break a rip. So their new uh, thing is now called Iron Gwazi. It has a, I think, a crocodile theme. And it is just a just a beast. It's uh, almost twice as tall now. It's 206 wow. feet tall. It has a bigger drop it's, uh, of 206 feet. And it goes up to 76 miles per hour, which is very fast for a roller coaster. And now there's all these upside-down moments, inversions in uh, roller speak ease, including uh, what they call a zero-G <laughs> stall, which is when you're you uh, zero gravity and you're upside-down for, like, a few agonizing moments. Wow. Um, so it's just a – it's considered, like, 
the hottest one right now for for coaster aficionados. It's only rivaled by I think right now the Jurassic World Velocicoaster in uh, Universal. So the uh, and that's at Bush uh-huh. Gardens. You wouldn't expect something so cutting edge at Bush Gardens. Glad, yeah, yeah, they're uh, they're making a. Jason commented in the in the story we wrote that the Central Florida roller coaster arms race is back on. Yeah, so it sounds like. Well, speaking about an arms race, there's a constant arms race going on between Universal Studios and Disney. Right. But Disney takes their own sweet time, right? It takes they them do. longer to, to develop coasters and other thrill rides than most anybody else. But oh, yeah. one ones that they've been working on for almost half a decade will finally it looks like they're finally debuting I, I don't know if they have they officially announced that and we may be going to california with these right well at least one of them at disney world at epcot uh is is supposed to happen this summer maybe memorial day weekend and um that's guardians of the galaxy cosmic rewind um mm. and it's an indoor coaster it's uh is they call it a story coaster so that means your your chair kind of or your ride uh your seat spins around to like show you video segments right, that have been, been right. recorded specifically for this by the cast of Guardian, Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy movies. It's one of the biggest indoor coasters in the world. And yeah, they've been working on it forever. Disney parks are always slow, but you know, they were especially slow since the pandemic. And this, uh, and then the other one is Tron light cycle run is supposed may open in magic kingdom in 2019. It's a, a duplicate of a ride at Shanghai Disneyland. And there, there, there has been no date for that one. It may open late to 2022 or early 2023, but they take forever. And then, as Jason pointed out, they there's no really major roller coasters at Disney World after that. So this those will be the first, the last Disney right. uh, roller coasters for a long time. Interesting, interesting. In the yeah, and the the mag the uh, article also goes into a couple of their in the Midwest, a couple that have been refurbished. If you want to read it, go to fromers.com. But we started this conversation talking about the fact that we are recording this, and I should say we are recording this sober on St. Patrick's Day. So there, <laughs> sober there might... for now. It's only five, five <laughs> Right. There, there might be a law against that. I, we should be drinking something green as we do this. <laughs> or oh, Jameson, shots of Jameson. Actually, I'm in New York City and, you know, the streets are just filled with people in silly green hats kind of tottering here and there. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm in Boston. So, you know, they oh my the goodness. two cities that go crazy on uh, St. Patrick's Day. Beyond Dublin itself. So uh, in on Fromers.com today, you had a wonderful article about you looked back at one of our original Fromer guidebooks, Ireland on $5 a day. Boy, those, those were the days. Although yeah. when people Mind say box. that, well, but actually you could do it if you did something like couch surfing. So you oh, stayed yeah. for free on somebody's couch and then ate all their food. Maybe Wait, you those, could do $5. And those classic, those classic $5 a day, the, that didn't include, airfare was not part of the, obviously not part of the budget. No. It was like your time in the city. Yes, right, yeah. right, yeah. So tell us about that article and looking back to, to the Ireland uh, or Dublin on $5 a day. Yeah, what, that was uh, really just, uh, I love doing looking back in the old books. Uh, we have lots of uh, photos on, on our site uh, from the, the old Guinness Brewery and everything. So what it was was Ireland on $5 a day, which was published in 1967, about 10 wow. years after... Fromer's uh, debuted. Arthur Fromer, Pauline's father, wrote Europe on $5 a day in 1957. It's 
our 65th anniversary this year. Yes. Um, anyway, uh, the writer whose name was Beth Bryant, she she toured the Guinness Brewery in 1967. With the, back then, they had a visitor's reception room where you could they'd show you some of the machinery and walk you through the process, and then they'd give you a uh, a sample of Guinness at the end. And then um, I I sort of reached out to the Guinness Archives people to see how long that was in process and and how long they they did those huh. tours yeah and then compared to what they have today which is the guinness storehouse which is this high-tech very oh, yeah. slick uh situation it's like seven stories tall it's made to look like a giant pint glass inside and they go <laughs> on and on about barley and yeast right um, yeah. uh, the best my favorite part is they have the all the old memorabilia the, from the advertising so you see the guinness toucan there's like a an ad that's like a lot of ads that say Guinness is good for you. They, they acted like it was a health drink. And then at the top, there's this beautiful gravity bar, they call it. And you get this beautiful uh, shot uh, view of Dublin and you still get a free pint. So that's been going on for like 200 years where they give you a free pint. Years. At the end, wow. Like that. Yeah. According to the archive people. But, you know, while you're in, in Dublin, that's a great place to enjoy a pint of Guinness. But you should also go to the traditional pubs, the Victorian pubs oh, have been there forever. And the people are just the nicest. It's a, you, you cannot have a bad time in Dublin in a Dublin pub. I had a bad time the oh, last well, time I <laughs> well not 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 in a pub. I was I was uh, I was traveling with my then eight year old and and we went to Leprechaun World. Never which, heard of that. <laughs> it's this it's this silly, silly attraction where everything is humongous so there are there's a rocking chair that's you know 10 feet tall and uh, so that you oh, to make feel, the guests feel like a leprechaun so that to make the guest feel like a leprechaun and i was having my daughter climb up onto one of the silly chairs for a photo and she fell off right oh, on her gosh. head and so we ended up in a, an irish hospital <laughs> bagosh and bagora bagosh and bagora yeah. But other than that, it's always so wonderful to be in Ireland because oh, yeah. I, I had a, an author on this show a couple of weeks back. She wrote a wonderful book called The Book of Irishisms about how the Irish speak. And she spoke about the fact or she wrote about the fact that they'll often repeat phrases like, oh, there it was, there it was. And then they'll go on to whatever they're saying and I think that might be partially why they're such good storytellers, because they don't interject so much with, uh, you know, these dull uhs. Uh-huh. They, they, they have these verbal tics that really lend it such a beautiful kind of um, a, a sing-song nature to it. But she also said to me, no, I think the Irish are such great storytellers because the British didn't want to educate us. And so a lot of the learning was done in what were called hedge schools. They were done in outdoor uh, environments where people would orally teach the children. And so the, 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 they had this kind of oral Like an oral tradition. storytelling tradition. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. You know what else helps with the storytelling is being at pubs all the time. That helps a lot too. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, we'll loosen the tongue. Yes, it will. So read read uh, Zach's charming story. And as always, thank you, Zach, for appearing here with me on the Frommer Travel Show. My pleasure, Pauline. Have a good day. I have my next guest in the docket. He is Nate Ritter. Welcome to the Frommer Travel Show, Nate. Thank you for having me, Pauline. So you are, a, is it fair to say you're an avid traveler? 
<laughs> yeah, I like to think that, but then I meet people on the road and I'm like, man, I haven't gone anywhere. So, so yeah, I like to think that, but, uh, but there's, you know, it's, it's always a gray area. There's always somebody who's traveled more than you, right? Well, I, I was listening to a podcast you did, and I should say that you are the founder of a travel website, and we'll get to that because I think it came out of your travels a little bit. And on the podcast, it was talking about how you tried to move to France or you did move to France, but there were a lot of stumbling blocks. You, you called yourself in the podcast a failed expat. Uh, <laughs> what, what, were, what were the big failures? What, is so, what are the two things that make it really hard to move to France? Yeah, um, I think the two biggest things that made it really difficult, um, I think the process was really hard for me to understand. And I don't know, I'm I'm not so great with just walking through every single little detail either. So that, sure. <laughs> that's a first starting point. And with the bureaucracy in France, it's, you know, that's, that's legendary. So, so I think the first thing was just really paying attention to what was necessary for us to do, what documentation we had to bring with us and what we should, what the process should have been. I should have mapped that out a bit more. And I think a bit more due diligence there would help. Mm. Um, but this, the second probably um, more difficult thing to do is actually to figure out how to get a bank account in France. Um, and that yeah. seems really easy, but it's actually extremely difficult. And and it seems easy because we think, oh, we just go to the bank like a U.S. citizen and, and open a bank account. bank account. But when you're yeah. not a citizen, it's definitely not easy. And there seems to be kind of this circle that you go through where you have to prove who you say you are and where you say you live. But you can't really live anywhere in France without having a bank account to pay for your rent. And you go in this <gasps> mad circle. So figuring out how to do that well and right. And there are some tricks to that. But now that I've learned it, but um yeah, that's probably probably the most dif difficult part about moving to someplace like France. <laughs> right. And because you didn't have a bank account, you had lousy Wi-Fi and you couldn't really work. Right. How long did you last in France? We only lasted for three months. Uh, and we, we basically spent about I mean, this was back in 2008 days. But we spent about $10,000 a month trying to figure this out, and we oh just ripped goodness. through everything and had to leave at some point because we were basically paying tourist prices, essentially. Right. Well, I always tell people that my job as a travel writer is to make every single mistake so that my <laughs> my readers don't. You know, I'm supposed to be an expert, but I make the stupidest mistakes, but that leads to the best articles, and in your case... <laughs> Uh, it led to a business idea. So tell us about your hotel. Should we call it a Chrome extension or should we call it a website or, or give us the name and, and tell us tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Yeah. So it's roomsteals.com. And um, and we do have a Chrome extension, but w which is useful. Um, but it's also, I mean, really just a hotel booking site. And, you know, it seems pretty generic on the surface of it. But really what we do is um, because when you log in and we know who you are, we can offer prices that other people can't. And that's usually closed to the public, which you'll you'll never see the prices that we have available in the public. We're not on kayak.com or, or anything like that. Um, and we never will be. And and the reason for that is because of some of the, the hotel agreements in the industry. And so what we've done is we've found this source of inventory that we can put out there. And sometimes it's extremely discounted hotel prices, which being a travel hacker, I, I thought I knew everything. And then I found this. And so, so this was surprising. Can I ask 
what the source is? I mean, why does <laughs> why do some sources have so much cheaper hotel rooms? What what's the reasoning behind this? Yeah, so the I'll I'll try and keep it short, but the basic idea is that these prices have always existed. They are you they used to be reserved only for those folks who are putting on doing activities in the area, and they used to be leave a little bit of margin for that activity person or if somebody was going to package things together like flight and activity and hotel, they would leave a little margin in there for the person to, to that that company to take a little bit of of extra so that they would. Um, sell that inventory for them. So oh, this is so, so essentially these are wholesale. Ho- yeah, so these are hotel rooms that there's no commission on because the commission comes from another part of the package. Would right. that be fair so, to say? Yeah, it's, it allows for the person who's selling it to mark it up. And that's okay. what, and so, so yeah, so the, the, the history here is now, today, this inventory is actually still being sold by, you know, large companies, large online travel agencies, and the the problem is that they're doing it or not problem, but what the way they make their money is by still selling this inventory, but they don't tell you what the margin difference is and they just keep it and they sell it at retail price. So you're going to pay the same price as you would at one from one place to another, but they're going to you know pay the hotel a wholesale price and they're going to keep the difference in margin. We do so when you different. say they, you're you're talking about Expedia, Orbitz, Travelocity, Booking.com, uh, right. basically all all of the travel names that we know. All the travel names you know, yes, yes. Okay. So it's they make money in two ways: either through commission because the hotel pays them after the fact after somebody books and checks out, or through margin, which is this way. And so they just keep the difference between the retail price and what they buy it for, which is like a normal thing that you would do at Costco or you know anything. Right. Right. So, so we how thought do a little you different. do it? Okay. We, yeah, we saw it a little differently. We thought, well, you know, there's it's difficult to be transparent in this industry. Everybody kind of seems to, ha- A, have pretty close to the same prices, and B, when there's anybody making any money in it, they kind of all hide inside of it. So there, somebody's may taken a dollar here or a dollar there or, or whatever, or, you know, in Expedia and Booking's case, thousands of dollars. And... And they keep that, and they don't really tell you that you could have got it at some cheaper price. And this inventory that we found, we we learned that we could offer it to the individual, and we didn't have to actually take any margin. So what we do is we don't take anything on the transaction. We take zero. So we make our money through the subscription, and it's kind of like right. Costco. You pay a $95 a year subscription, and then you get as kind of an all-you-can-eat buffet of hotels at the wholesale price. And this is six to 700,000 hotels around the world. So it's not just limited to a small subset. Now, for somebody who doesn't travel that often, $95 could be a big amount of money. I mean, uh, when I was looking, I was looking at your extension, I would say most of, it seemed like every time I did it, the uh, and I did it with, I think it was booking.com, the prices on your extension were always $20 less. Mm-hmm. That that seemed to be the average, but that was just my unscientific quick scan of of what you do. So that it would it would ca- it would it would take me what, 5 stays before I made back the membership fee, which for many travelers would be, you know, a drop in the bucket because they're traveling all the time. For others, that's all they travel in a year. Right. And so the key here is that we're, we want to be, first of all, transparent and we want to give, you know, 
whether you book with us or not doesn't really matter to us. We may, again, we make no money on that transaction. What we do want to do is tell is show you here's where the here's where the best place is to book. And right now, all we're doing is comparing Booking.com or wherever you're looking. Um, with the extension and ourselves. But in the future, we're going to be actually opening that up to anybody. And even if you don't book with us, we'll tell you that. But today, to solve for that $20 type of problem, right. it's really about looking at it as a, as a possible option. Because when you find those deals, they can be incredible. Like, okay. for instance, we recently had somebody who booked um, on behalf of her and her husband and they wanted to take a kind of a little staycation. They wanted to drive about three hours away, go to the mountains um, for their anniversary. She used the, uh, the Chrome extension and found that the place that she wanted to book for the prices, for the dates that she wanted to go actually saved her $400, even with wow. the membership fee. So when you find it, it's amazing. And if you're, if you travel a lot, you might need to do the incremental thing. If you don't, and you this is the one time you're going to do it, it's still worth taking a look because I've seen as much as $3,000 in difference between a stay for a weekend um, at, for instance, in Portugal or in Las Vegas versus what you're going to find publicly. So sometimes well, $3,000, I mean, that sounds like the, the highest of high end suites that you're staying in. So <laughs> yeah. is your service better for people uh, really looking for those luxury, uh, luxurious uh, accommodations, or does it also work on the lower end of the scale? Yeah, I think it, it works on both. Um, I think you're right in the sense that, like, if you're looking at the low end of the scale of savings, there you're probably going to need to add up over time. So you might want to be, you know, if you're traveling often and staying in lower end hotels, you can still get the value out of it. If you're, but if you are traveling for a short period of time and low-end hotels, it might not be right for you. And that's okay. okay. We're, we're really about, and this is why we show you the prices actually before you even book um, or before you pay us. So you can go on and, and actually become uh, a subscriber or, or become a member, sorry, for, for free. So you can see the right. prices. You never have to actually book it. But when you find that amazing deal that supersedes the annual price, that's when you're going to want to probably make that choice and, and become a member at that point. And if we're not saving you $95 for the year, just email me and <laughs> we'll give it back to you. I mean, wow. that's how Well, that's very we generous. So, yeah. That's amazing. Well, is $20 the average? Did I hit upon it or is there no average? I mean, what, what have you found? What, are, what is the big, so you said people have s saved as much as 3000 in Las Vegas for the weekend. I'm assuming that's in the penthouse suite. That's only usually given to the whales. Right. Uh, the big, the big gamblers are called whales in Vegas. Right. What for, for more standard hotel rooms, what are you finding to be the average savings? And are there parts of the world where this works better than others? Yeah. The, the average savings is roughly around 20 to 25%. So the more you spend, obviously, the more you're going to save. And, you know, to kind of tap into the real quick on the on the those kind of whale type of penthouse suites in Vegas. I mean, those. Um, so I say they, you could have saved three thousand dollars. The interesting thing is, if you go to a nice hotel, uh, you're going to be paying two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollars anyway. In this uh -huh. case, the penthouse suite was thirty five hundred dollars and you were saving thirty two hundred. So you would have gotten it for $300. Wow. So that's I mean, incredible. 
I'd pay an extra couple 50 bucks or 100 bucks to stay in a penthouse suite for a weekend. If, if I'm going to save three grand and I'm never going to, you know, that's that's kind of the way I looked at it was like, I'm a travel hacker. I would do this. And if I find that kind of a deal, it makes sense. Now, so. do you find that kind of a deal at the last minute? It, it seems like it would be crazy for the Las Vegas hotel to give somebody that prized incredibly expensive suite for 10% of the cost six months in advance. I would think they they would kind of have to know what their inventory is before they release it at that low rate. Or am I, or is it, am I missing something? No, you're right. I mean, the big, the, the hotels, the bigger hotels, not the boutiques, but generally the bigger hotels all have a revenue manager on staff. Right. So they're all playing and tweaking with, you know, what's the weather like? Is there an event coming in? Um, you sure. Know, What's our normal, you know, occupancy rate for this weekend or whatnot? So when they're playing with that, they, they obviously do know whether or not or they have a guess as to whether or not they're going to be selling that suite out. Now, the closer it comes time to actually the date that you're going to check in, of course, you know, if they haven't filled it and they normally would have before then, then they're going to offer that as a much, a much lower price. So the trick with room steals is really to look at places where the supply and demand is kind of offset. So maybe, for instance, you want to go into the off-season to Vegas, or you want to go to the off-season off to a particular um, resort or destination. And sure. that's where you're going to find the biggest bang for your buck because their, their occupancy rate is relatively low during that time. Yeah. And their revenue managers are looking at, you know, wh what are the channels that we can put our inventory out, like Booking.com or Expedia or, you know, a wholesale market or whatever – and they'll chop up their inventory and put it out onto different different places um, to see like what what where do we get our our inventory um, bought up? And this is mm. one of those places. And so they're looking at it, saying, well, if we offer a little less, maybe some of these discount places like Room Steals would bring in the the person who would book it. And that's where the sure. opportunity lies. I see. Very interesting. And are you worldwide now? Because when I when I tested you, I tested you in New York City, so a big market, and in Traverse City, Michigan, a tiny market. Uh, sure. And I found the same the same twenty five percent or so uh, savings in in each. And I was I was really pleased to see so many options in in Traverse City because I thought, oh, will they even have this? But they did. You did. Uh, yeah. Are you in Dubai? Are you in? Porto in Portugal? Are you in uh, Quito, Ecuador? I haven't checked Quito, Ecuador, so I can't <laughs> say on that one. But the uh, but yes, I mean the other ones you've mentioned, we are we are there. There are markets where the hotels just simply get so much traction or so many visitors that they actually don't have to play the wholesale game, where oh, they don't have okay. to offer a smaller. One of those would be like, for instance, the Caribbean. They generally just simply don't have, they don't, those hotels don't usually put their inventory into a wholesale channel like this. Um, they don't have to. They're always right. booked. <laughs> so, so they have no need to do that. And there's other places that either um, haven't decided for whatever reason um, to go into the wholesale market. There might be regulations for, for their, that area. Um, huh. I'm thinking, or perhaps it's just so cheap anyway, like India. Of course, the bigger hotels like the Hyatts and the Marriott's are going to play that game, but some of the smaller ones probably don't, don't even sure, realize that sure. this kind of inventory is, is possible to put their inventory out onto. Well, it's fascinating. How long have you been in business now? About two years now. Okay. So. 
Oh, rough time to start. My goodness. <laughs> Very. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> yes. We launched uh, about two months before uh, COVID hit, and and that was a uh, that was an interesting time. We got a lot of traction early on, and then of course everything for everybody slowed down at that point. So. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And do you have just one last question before I let you go? Do you also have vacation rentals? Does the the extension? No. No. What the Chrome. Mm-hmm. Chrome extension. Yeah, I'm getting it right. Uh, Do you you do that too, or is it just classic hotel rooms? Right now, it's classic hotel rooms. We've talked with others who offer, like, for instance, property management systems for boutique hotels, Mm -hmm. um, also Airbnb uh, and VRBO. We do have access to some of them, but the reason why we've held off with them so far is that most people who are looking for a hotel don't generally end up into that space or they separate those kinds of ideas completely. So instead of comparing them with the extension, what we plan on doing in the future is actually saying, okay, you're looking at this hotel, um, but actually the best possible deal in the area is this other hotel that's nearby. And instead of comparing direct, we're going to start showing uh, what are, you know, what are the, the, what's the best possible option for kind of what you've already searched for? Like, star rating and those kinds of things that's close by and in that at that point we'll start kind of pushing it out a little bit further beyond hotels i see and so you give part of your uh, $95 subscription fee when you uh, get it you give it to the organization that is the wholesaler and that's how they make their money from you is that correct right that's correct yeah. yep okay yep. very interesting business model uh i wish you the very best of luck and thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you. This has been fun. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And I thank you to all the listeners who are listening either here on Call In Live uh, or on whatever platform you're hearing us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And to those who are traveling, I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. Channel